We are coming to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, and of course the intensity just continues to grow. Uh, at the end of chapter 26, uh, there was a lot going on. We took our time going through chapter 26 because there was so much there. Uh, Jesus arrests there in the garden. The disciples all flee. We saw Peter deny Jesus three times. We also saw one of the trials before the Sanhedrin. So uh, Matthew is giving kind of an overview of the things that have happened. So he doesn't talk about every trial. And, and we, I mentioned that last week, that it, there was a series of trials that happened. Um, the Sanhedrin is what started it all off. Uh, and we talked also about how the Sanhedrin, uh, along with everyone involved in Jewish law, had some really great rules that had been established for the law and how to do things, uh, way ahead of other cultures for sure. Uh, and there's more than this, but I think these are, these are five of the big ones. So uh, one of them was that it had all trials had to take place during the daytime. Nothing had happened at night, so there was nothing hidden. There was nobody sneaking in or out. Everything was right there before everyone's eyes. Uh, it had to take place in the official place of judgment. So what we'd consider a courtroom or a courthouse, they had areas that were set aside specifically to deal with legal matters. And if it wasn't held there, it wasn't valid. There was uh, no criminal trials were to take place over the season of Passover. No decisions were to be given on the day of the trial. There had to be a 24-hour period between the trial and the decision given and, and the idea of that was that it would let emotions fade and let mercy rise. And so when the actual decision came down, it might be more merciful than it, if it had been right on the day of the trial. And then uh, the other one, very well established in Scripture, is that it had to be by two or more witnesses that anybody was convicted. Their testimony had to be perfectly in line, and anybody that gave false testimony could lose their life. It was very serious. And we see that in this trial of the Sanhedrin, all of those are broken. That Jesus is tried by night. It's in uh, the high priest's house rather than the, the official place. It's during the time of Passover. They're looking for false witnesses, and, and they reach a verdict immediately then. So they broke everything. Now, as we get into chapter uh, 27, the trials continue of Jesus. Um, but we also see more information or more of the story of Judas. You know, we saw Judas there in the garden betraying Jesus, uh, and, and this, we actually reach his end. And, and as we talk about that, along with some other things, one of the things that stands out to me in this chapter is that there are some great examples of the worldly counterfeit compared to the reality. And we all deal with this. You know, even though we, we've given our lives to Christ, we still deal with our own flesh, we deal with the world we live in, and we certainly deal with the attacks of the enemy and temptation and all those things. And there is a counterfeit for every good thing that God has in store. And in learning to spot the counterfeits, learning to not give in to the easy way that our flesh so quickly and, and readily desires, uh, is, is part of our walk. It's it's part of us being changed into his likeness, right, as we learn these things. And so in this chapter, I think there's a couple really great examples of the reality and the counterfeit. So let's pray. We're only going to go about halfway through the chapter today. 
Again, there's a lot here, so uh, let's pray and we'll, we'll get into it. Lord Jesus, how desperately we need to know you more. And we just give you ourselves, we give you this time, we pray, Holy Spirit, you would speak to each and every one of us, that you would apply your word to our hearts and that we'd be changed. And we give you this time, we give you ourselves in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So starting in verse 1, chapter 27, it says, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. And he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed And went and hanged himself. But the chief priests took the silver and said, It is not lawful for us to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, the field has been called the field of blood to this day. And this was fulfilled, or excuse me, then this, one more time, then was fulfilled. What was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom the children of Israel had priced, and they gave them to the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now, um, again, because their trial took place at night, they have another meeting after sunrise. And basically just to agree to kind of try and legitimize the trial that they've already had, um, saying, see, it wasn't at night. We agreed during the daytime, too. Uh, They still broke every other law, but uh, that's why this is mentioned again, is that this was another meeting of the Sanhedrin before they finally take Jesus off to uh, Pontius Pilate. The sad part is, is that these guys were to be the protectors of the law. These were the ones that were put in authority to protect the people, to see that justice was done, that mercy was, was offered. All of these things were their job. But because there's no authority over them, they break them all, and nobody holds them accountable to it. Um, now they decided that Jesus was worthy of death. Again, they don't really have anything for that. They ask, Is, are you the Christ? And he said, yeah, just as you said. And so they go, well, that's blasphemy, that's worthy of death. But they have no ability to carry it out. Uh, Israel could not put people to death. And so now the next step is to manipulate Rome to do it. And that's where Pontius Pilate comes in, as we're going to see. It's not very hard. They kind of have like this three-step process. So the first thing they do is they go, oh, yeah, he's a criminal. Well, if he wasn't, we wouldn't have brought him to you. Well, that doesn't work. And then they give a little trial. And, and Pontius Pilate, as we'll see, kind of attempts to let Jesus go. But then there's the final blow that they strike. And again, this was all planned. This was all very laid out. And uh, they had already figured out, if push comes to shove, they know exactly how to make uh, Pontius Pilate bend to their will. And then in verse 3, we come back to Judas. And again, this is just a short little snippet of him going back. It's really easy for us to just read right over it and go, well, okay, sorry, Judas, too bad for you. Um, We know that he was motivated by greed. And that's what the scripture tells us. 
And so we don't know really anything else, uh, but it most likely was not the greed for money. We talked about that before when he made the agreement for 30 pieces of silver. That's a small amount. It was what someone would pay for the least of slaves. Like if you bought a slave in the slave market, the bottom of the barrel was 30 pieces of silver. So it wasn't very much money, but whatever his greed was for, whether it was power or prestige, uh, it did not work out the way he hoped. Things did not go the way he expected. And it's possible he thought that he was going to force Jesus' hand here. That if he, if he gets these religious leaders to come for him, that Jesus will then rise up, become the military leader that they'd hoped the Messiah would be. And when he didn't do that, and in some way we even see that with the other disciples, right? Peter jumps up with his sword, he's ready to attack. And when Jesus doesn't defend himself, they all scatter. Judas, whatever his motive was, um, he realizes it's not going his way. Again, maybe he was hoping that Jesus would rise to power and that all the disciples would be right there next to him, including himself, um, but that's not happened. And so seeing that Jesus has been condemned, he's remorseful, and he brings the money back. And this is where I see the first example of a the counterfeit and the reality. Because remorseful is not repentance. There is the counterfeit of worldly sorrow. And then there's the reality of godly sorrow. And they are completely at different ends of the spectrum. The worldly sorrow says sorry but it's really sorry for the result of sin it's sorry for getting caught it's sorry that things didn't go the way i planned i thought if i did this it would turn out differently and i'm sorry it didn't but it isn't sorry for committing the act of sin and even judas says oh i've sinned by betraying innocent blood and so he is saying that yes he committed something he did something wrong but again, what he's sorry for, his sorrow is about not getting what he wanted. And there, again, I think there's a lot that can go along with that. A person can be filled with grief, they can cry, they can apologize, they can promise to make changes, all of these things. Um, and I think very often, worldly sorrow is accompanied by the desire to bring justice upon yourself, it, 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 it results in this downward spiral towards death. And that's what we see with Judas. I mean, there's no doubt he's filled with grief. But rather than, than seeking forgiveness, than repenting of his sin, he decides to punish himself for what he's done. And I think all of us have been there to some degree. I certainly have seen people that I care about get caught up in addiction and all these things and this downward spiral of, I'm so bad, I don't deserve, lo de deserve love, I don't deserve forgiveness. And they attempt to punish themselves to bring about some sort of twisted justice. And again, this is, this is what we see with uh, Judas. I think another good example of it is King Saul in the Old Testament. Then when he's pursuing David to take his life, he gets caught twice. 
And David confronts him. And twice he gives these just tear-filled speeches about how sorry he is. And he humbles himself even before the entire army of Israel going, I was wrong and you're my son and, and come home, David. You know, this huge sorrow, but it's worldly sorrow. And it doesn't change a thing. Worldly sorrow can never bring about positive change. It's using earthly wisdom, earthly strength, and the things of earth, and it can never produce the godly change that needs to happen in us, ever. Godly sorrow, on the other hand, has one goal in mind, and it is to gain the forgiveness of God, even if you cannot get the forgiveness of people. It's to make everything as right as you can with him and with others, but you may not get forgiveness for anything that you've done from others. The goal is simply to get forgiveness from him. And that makes all the difference. There is an honest brokenness and there is a real repentance from sin. Paul put it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, where he said, For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. I mean, that's cut and dried. That's, that's as good as you can get it. A godly sorrow has a true repentance, and it leads to salvation. It's not just words. It's not just tears. It's not just promises. There is a conversation that happens between you and the God of the universe, saying, I am wrong you were right. And I will change. I want you to change me. I want to change my direction completely. But you've got to do it, right? Judas is consumed by worldly sorrow. He says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And he admits, Jesus is innocent. There isn't anything for, he, for him to point to. After all the time of being with Jesus, seeing Jesus teach, and among the people, Judas was right there for all of it. And there isn't anything he can go, yeah, well, Jesus did this wrong. And it was okay for me to do that. He's, no, Jesus was absolutely innocent of all these things. And part of what Judas is attempting to do here is to also connect his guilt to the guilt of the religious leaders. The problem is they don't care. I mean, they don't care at all. So Judas is there going, look, I've betrayed innocent blood. Jesus is innocent. Here's your money. And, and even by throwing it into the temple is to say, this was your money that you paid me to do a wrong thing. And they're like, it's not our problem. Judas, if you feel convicted about that, go take care of it. Go do something. We're fine. They have no concern whatsoever. And Again, he throws the money in. And the biggest concern that the leaders have is how to spend it. I mean, to me, that just makes my stomach churn. That, that they're so messed up. They're so twisted. That here this, they've convicted Jesus of, of uh, blasphemy. They're trying to get him put to death by Rome. And even when Judas comes back and confronts him, they're like, well, at least we got our money back. Well, we can't put it in the, we can't put it in the offering because, of course, we... It's blood money that we paid for. 
So we got we got to make sure it's up, you know, above boards. We want to be righteous about all this. Well, let's buy some property. <laughs> Again, it just shows how twisted all of this is. Um, now, again, Matthew points out this prophecy in verse 9. that They took the 30 pieces of silver that were valued to him who was prized, whom they, the children of Israel, prized, and they gave it to the potter's field. I, one of the things I just love about prophecies like this is how exact they are. You're like, you're kidding me. 30 pieces of silver, first of all. And, and then what would be done with them in the end is to buy the potter's field. You know, all these things. And it, I just love how the Lord does things like this. What's funny, or funny and sad, is that people will totally ignore how exact that prophecy is and try and find problems with it. And, and one of the problems is that people will point out is that this prophecy that's spoken of, uh, Matthew says, spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, uh, the prophecy is actually found in Zechariah chapter 11. And so people go, well, what about that? Misquote? Did, did Matthew misquote the Bible? Can it even be trusted? Did, how did this happen? Was this the, the fault of some scribe that wrote it down, that he wrote it down in a wrong way? Can the Bible even be trusted then? Again, first of all, ignoring how exact this prophecy is, uh, there's two very easy explanations for this. Uh, both of them could be true, but I think either one of them explains it very clearly. First of all, Zechariah and Jeremiah were contemporaries of each other. That At the end of Jeremiah's ministry is when Zechariah was around. And so this may have been something spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, but written down by Zechariah. The other one is, is uh, and this is, I think, most likely what, what Matthew was talking about, is that the scroll of Jeremiah, which is all they had back then, that's what Matthew certainly would have been thinking of, the scroll of Jeremiah always contained the book of Zechariah as well. And so it was very common for people to refer to Zechariah and Jeremiah in the, in the same way, because it was always in the same scroll that the rabbis would have. Uh, either way, like I said, very easily explained, but people will ignore everything else to try and find fault with that one little thing. All right, verse 11. It says, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked, and, excuse me, the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he answered, answered nothing. And then Pilate said to him, do you hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not a word. And so the governor marveled greatly. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitudes one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to re release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. And while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, saying, Have nothing to do with, this just, with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. 
Again, Matthew's kind of giving us an overview of some of the details here, leaving out uh, certain parts of the trials that took place. Like I said, at first it was the Sanhedrin. Then he actually went to Pilate. And then Pilate sent him to Herod. Herod sent him back to Pilate. So this is actually the second trial that Matthew's recording here. Um, and we don't get a list of the accusations. I mean, we kind of already know what they're accusing Jesus of. Uh, but Pilate's question to Jesus confirms that, right? That the religious leaders are, are accusing Jesus of tr- claiming to be a king, claiming to be a rebel, claiming to overthrow Rome is, is the idea there. And so that's why Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? Now, again, that's a dangerous question, and I love that Jesus doesn't hesitate at all. He just goes, it's just as you say. And then he doesn't explain anything. <laughs> you know, I can't, I think of myself going, but well, well, let me explain what that means, actually. You know, let me get, you know, who the Messiah is supposed to be. And these guys think I'm going to be a military leader, but I'm not really. And, you know, I'd just be babbling. But Jesus doesn't say anything. He just goes, just as you said. Doesn't correct him, doesn't give a long explanation. Uh, but when he says that Pilate's correct, this leads to more accusations. These guys just start firing more and more. And Pilate's expecting Jesus at some point to defend himself, to speak. And that was his right, right? I mean, again, their legal system was pretty good. And so the accusers would make an accusation, and then the person accused could give a testimony of their innocence or whatever they wanted to do. Uh, And Jesus doesn't do that. And I can't help but think what a huge contrast this must have been. I mean, try and see this through Pilate's eyes. Pilate's overseen many, many trials. And in every one, it's pretty much the same. There's somebody making the accusations, and there's somebody who's accused. And they, they go back and forth. If you've ever been on uh, a, a trial or jury duty, you kind of get an idea of what a courtroom looks like and how it works, and similar to then. And so he's seen all these things, but there's something so very different about this case. First of all, he's very suspicious, and rightly so, of the religious leaders, because they didn't accuse Jewish people of anything. If anything, if someone was a rebel, they were more likely to hide them or get them out of town. They were happy to have rebels against Rome. And so for them to show up and go, hey, by the way, Pilate, this guy doesn't like Rome. (laughs) They're like, or he's thinking, what do you care? You usually like those people, right? And so that's very suspicious that they would just be spitting all this venom at Jesus and how wrong he is. And and they've already tried him. They've already beaten him. So they're bringing Jesus in this state of already receiving a pretty good beating from them. And now I just picture them like screaming these accusations, putting on this huge dramatic show like the guilty always do, right? That when they're trying, you don't have a point you can make, so you just make it loud as you can. And people go, well, they're pretty passionate about that. It must be true. And in contrast to that there's jesus man not defending himself no fear no anger no vengeance towards these people and when pilate sees this he marvels greatly and again i i I wish we could see what that was like right to be in that room to see the contrast between the religious leaders and jesus for For Pilate to take such a note of it, to marvel greatly about it, says it was something dynamic in the way that Jesus was in that courtroom. 
He knew that they had handed Jesus over because of envy. That they weren't to be trusted for the things that they were doing. Their motives were wrong, and he knew it. Uh, now, there's some other interesting things that happens here. We're told that it was Pilate's custom to release a prisoner during uh, Passover. And so that was common. What's not common is that we're going to see Pilate basically take a, a vote of the crowd of what should be done with Jesus. And that never happened. That was something that was never up for a vote. Matthew even makes the point of saying that Pilate was in the judgment seat, meaning any word he spoke from there was final. If he went, Jesus is free, that was it. If he said he's guilty, that was it. No more questioning. But instead, Pilate goes into this, let's all talk about it as a, it, as a group and take a vote. That was very odd. But when it even comes to the release of the prisoner, I think that he thought this was a slam dunk. It was almost a rhetorical question. Who do you want me to release to you? Barabbas, a notorious criminal. The other Gospels tell us that he was an insurrectionist and a murderer. And that wasn't even a question. It's like, we already know this thing, these things about him. This dude's evil. And so Pilate's like, well, do you want me to let this guy go? Or Jesus, who hasn't done anything. The one that is called the Christ. This is the Messiah you guys have been waiting for. I don't even have a crime to hold against him. Who am I going to release? And I really think that he was like, you've got to be kidding me. There's only one choice here. And he puts it to the crowd. And that was an attempt to kind of work around the religious leaders because he knew their motives were wrong. And by going to the crowd, giving them such an obvious choice, hoping that they would choose Jesus. But again, I think this is another great example of the counterfeit and the reality. In fact, there's some things here that to me, it's, it's prophetic the way this comes about. Because Barabbas, the name of the prisoner who's there, his name literally means son of the father. Bar Abbas. Compared to the son of the father, Jesus Christ. You have Barabbas that has attempted to receive earthly power through force. The way of the flesh, the way of the world, the way of the devil. And you have Jesus who has come to redeem mankind by his sacrifice. Something the world does not understand. Complete opposite. Jesus the reality, Barabbas the counterfeit. The other part of that is, is that when you give the crowd the choice between the reality and the counterfeit, they will most often choose the counterfeit. Again, Pilate knows the reason Jesus has been brought there. And he has the power and he has the ability to dismiss this case completely. He knows the religious leaders are jealous. He knows Jesus is innocent. He is sitting in the judgment seat to make this choice. And instead of submitting the case, or excuse me, dismissing the case, he ends up giving in. And the reason is, we're going to see here in this next section, Verse 20 says, But when the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus, the governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, 
what then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they said to him, let him be crucified. Then the governor said, why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and he washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now there's not a lot we know about Pilate. There's very little record. In fact, for for generations, that was one of the things that people criticized the Bible about, is that Pilate did not exist. Well, over the years, archaeology has found buildings dedicated to him and even Roman documents that, that spoke about him. So we do know some things about Pilate, but still not a lot. What's interesting, uh, though, is the things that we do know is that he was not a just leader. He was not a kind man. In fact, he was known to be vicious and violent. He was also well known for climbing the Roman political ladder at any cost. And the scene that we see here in the Gospels is very contrary to what we know about Pilate. He was an evil man that hated Israel and hated the Jewish people. He didn't want to be there and caused a lot of trouble while he was there. Now again, it's out of character that he would put this to a public vote about not just who should be released, that was part of the choice that they were given, but what would be done with Jesus. And so not only do they say, well, give us Barabbas, but crucify Jesus. Again, that was beyond the crowd's ability to make that choice. Pilate had to make that choice, and whether he wanted to or not, he did by washing his hands. Now again, why didn't he just release Jesus? If we don't know some of the history about what was going on with Pilate, it'd be really easy to miss. We're told that a tumult was beginning to break out, which means a riot. In Pilate's violence, he had already made some hugely poor decisions in Jerusalem that resulted in two major riots. And Caesar himself had written to Pilate telling him, if one more riot breaks out in Jerusalem, not only will you lose your place, you'll lose your life. And everybody knew that. So when Pilate doesn't go the way they want, they start stirring up the crowd, and they start starting this riot, and Pilate realizes if that riot breaks out, he's dead. And so he goes, fine, take him, crucify him. Again, he tries to absolve himself. Verse 24, he says, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. You guys see to it. You guys go do it. Um, And then they release Barabbas, scourge Jesus. And that scourging was a brutal whipping. Uh, a huge amount of people simply died from the whipping and never made it to the cross. It was so brutal. Even that, Pilate's hoping that by doing it, people will release Jesus or, or relent on their, their hatred toward him, wanting to be crucified. It doesn't work. So finally, he delivers Jesus to be crucified. Once again, all of this, there's the reality of who Jesus is. And we know that, right? 
Hopefully each and every one of us have given our lives to Jesus. But how careful we still need to be about falling for the counterfeit. That even as believers, we can, we can have a, a worldly sorrow. We can put on the waterworks and we can put on the things. And maybe we even genuinely feel horrible about what we've done, but we never repent of it. We never change our direction. We think that the display of emotions and the, the, the big I'm sorry's and the big promises are enough. Godly sorrow may not have any of those. Godly sorrow simply says, God, I want your forgiveness at any cost. I want you to change me from the inside out. I want to be different. And, well, I think sin is the biggest extreme or the biggest example. It's also important for us to know that there's lots of little counterfeits out there. There's lots of little things. That God has so many good things in our marriage, in our lives, in our careers that he wants to do. And if we're listening to our flesh and we're allowing the enemy to, to influence us or the world to influence us, we're going to tend to fall for those counterfeits. How much better for us to go, God, what do you have? I want your reality. I want the best that you have in my marriage and in my family and in my career, wherever I might be, in my community. And if walking a harder path gets me there the way you want me to get there, that's how I want to go. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your word and the power that is in it. God, we want to be people that will not settle for any counterfeits, that we simply want you and you alone. Have your way in our lives. Have your way in this church. And uh, thank you for your patience with us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.